understand my task correctly, I've been given 10 to 15 minutes to articulate for you all the Christian theology of justice. So I'm going to ask you at the beginning to agree me, to forgive me for the sins that I've committed and the things that I've left done and undone as it relates to, that's using a little bit of language from my tradition, the Book of Common Prayer. So what does it mean here to talk a little bit about um, biblical justice? What does it mean to be a people of justice? What does justice mean from the, from the perspective of the Bible? On the one hand, the answer is pretty straightforward. Justice refers to honest and fair dealings. It refers to doing what is right and fair, as it says in Leviticus 19, verse 5. But it is also the case that this righteousness and fairness doesn't just come from anywhere. That righteousness and, and fairness is often seen as a reflection of God's own character and as a reflection of God's own rule. So when you look at things like Psalm 99 and Psalm 97, you see the righteousness and justice are the foundations of God's throne. But as it relates to God's rule, you also see in passages like Psalm 12:5 that when God sees injustice or the poor being mistreated, God himself, as their king and champion, says that he will arise and help them. Here I have in mind passages like Psalm chapter 12, verse 5, and I'm going to read that for you. Because the poor, the, because the poor are plundered and the needy groan, I'll arise, says the Lord, I'll protect them from those who malign them. This calling, then, to do what is right and fair applies to the just and, I'm sorry, the rich and the poor alike. So the Bible doesn't know anything about partiality. But if, you, if we want to attend to what does the Bible emphasize, what is the Bible trying to get across as the greatest danger besetting a community? From the perspective of the Bible, the great danger is not that society will be biased towards the poor. The real danger is that the society will be biased towards the rich. An example here is what God says in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 18 to 20. And, and, and let me read the scriptures for you. It says, Appoint judges and officials, each of you in the tribes of every town that the Lord your God has given you. So bring judges who are going to render fair judgment. And they shall judge fairly, no bias. Do not pervert justice or show partiality. And look at this part that they're really concerned with. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the innocent. Now the question becomes then, who are the people who are most likely to have the financial resources to affect legal outcomes? And the answer to that question is the rich. And so while the Bible does say we're not going to be biased towards the rich or the poor, the fear or the danger that we see in the Bible reflected time and again is the idea that the rich will take advantage of the resources to exploit the poor. It is important to note in this context then that justice is something that reflects God's own character that's supposed to play itself out in the community of God's people. But we, we hear something like that, and we could be tempted to think that this idea that judgment refers to fair adjustment with a particular concern for the needy is something only for God's covenant people. And I always like to direct people to Daniel chapter 4. In Daniel chapter 4, there's a story of Nebuchadnezzar. And when I was in Sunday school, the story of Nebuchadnezzar was seen as a story of pride. That Nebuchadnezzar was proud, and he was arrogant, and God humbled Nebuchadnezzar by making him go mad for a period of time. And all that is true. But there's something we need to attend to at the end of that story that is relevant for our understanding of the Christians' injustice, or Christians' injustice. And that is in Daniel chapter 4, verse 27, where after Daniel predicts Nebuchadnezzar's impending judgment, he says to him, Therefore cease off your mistreatment of the needy, and it might be that God's going to have mercy upon you. And we could add to that, 
the variety of texts across the prophets in which the people like Isaiah and Jeremiah don't just depict God's judgment upon Israel, but also God's judgment upon foreign nations. So it seems to be fair to say that God expects justice, not just in the communities that are run by divinely appointed kings, right? This is that this idea of justice is just for the covenant community. You also see God calling upon pagan nations to execute judgment. Now, we need to put in a couple of caveats lest we slide into legalism. Because it's important to recognize that God, in the strictest sense, is not just towards us. And that's good news because we want, we want to, our hope for life with God is ultimately his grace. When God revealed himself to the people in Israel, or he revealed himself to Moses, was this the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, full of mercy and abounding and steadfast love. And the Bible is full of passages in which God's graciousness forestalls strict judgment. That's Isaiah chapter 51. And this apparent tension between God's strict justice and God's graciousness is ultimately resolved in the cross of Christ, in which we see both the seriousness with, God's, with which God takes sin and the possibility of forgiveness. And so, yes, the Christian is the person who contends for justice, the fair treatment of all in society. But our justice is also tinged with the hint of grace that reflects God's own character of graciousness towards us. Now, when the Bible does speak about um, the God, or God as a God of justice, this idea is often co-located with the display of his concern for the needy. Here, I'm just going to point to you point you to a couple of other passages. You can have things like Psalm chapter 9, verse 7, and verses 16 and 18. And this is also true when you look at the prophets who contrast God oppression, sorry, who contrast justice with oppression of the poor. And so when they begin to see justice in the Bible as a biblical concept, there's justice on this side contrasted with oppression of the poor and the mistreatment of the needy. So God's justice then is avoiding these kinds of activities that is contrasted with. Furthermore, when you look closely into the prophecies of the Messianic kingdom or the world in which God rules, you see that it is often highlighted that the coming Davidic king would be concerned with justice and righteousness. I can just cite as an example of that Isaiah chapter 9 verses, sorry, Isaiah chapter 11 verses 1 to 9. Actually, you can also do Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 to 7. Now, who were these poor and the needy, the people who were at risk? In the world of ancient Israel and ancient Rome, the people most at risk were foreigners, single women, children, and the poor. This is because these groups often lacked the social network to help them in times of need. This is why the Old Testament text makes provision for them. So when you think of the, the, the gleaning laws, the gleaning laws said that um, you are not to reap your um, harvest or your vineyards to the edge, but you're supposed to leave something for the poor. And the other thing that's really important to understand as it relates to that is how memory functions in the Old Testament. So God brings his people out of Israel. And then that, that, that reality of escaping from slavery and coming into freedom becomes paradigmatic for how the Israelites um, think about their life and their vocation. In other words, the, the Exodus isn't just an, an event in the past from which they're grateful, which they're grateful. It becomes the basis by which the people of Israel reason. So you see over and over and over again, God telling the people, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and how that slavery affect how you treat other people. And so the foreigner, the widow, the children and the poor were protected in Israel 
precisely because Israel itself knew what it was like to be vulnerable. Now, if we're going to move to the New Testament, we're going to ask the question, well, there's a concern for the poor and the vulnerable. There's a concern for justice. There's a concern for God's kingdom that permeate the law, the, histo the historical books, and the prophets. What do you see when you turn to the ministry of Jesus? Interestingly enough, you see Jesus is almost as if there's continuity between the Testaments. You see Jesus, quote, beginning his public ministry by quoting those same Isianic passages that speak about justice for the poor. Here I'm talk, thinking about Luke, Jesus' first sermon in Luke chapter 4 and, and the quotation in that first sermon of Isaiah 58 and Isaiah 62. Furthermore, we cannot take seriously the idea that Jesus preached the kingdom of God without asking, well, what did that kingdom of God consist of? And did that kingdom of God have any roots in the Old Testament depiction of the kingdom of God? And when we turn to the Old Testament that we just spoke about, we see that God's kingdom was openly rooted in justice and righteousness. Now, therefore, we should see Jesus' ministry of the healing of the sick and the caring for the poor as the manifestation of the type of kingdom that God wanted to bring into being through his son. Now, this is once again a strange kind of kingdom, a kingdom so strange that when John the Baptist is arrested, he asks the question, Jesus, are you the one who is to come or should we look for someone else? And Jesus responds to John's potential disappointment, not with backing away from that ministry, but from taking the disciples of John on a healing tour. And he, Jesus sends the disciples back to John, telling him the, the sick are healed and the poor have good news preached to them. Blessed is the person who does, not, who does not stumble because of me. So in other words, Jesus' ministry of compassion and justice so, could possibly alienate people who didn't capture a vision of the kingdom that he was trying to bring in a, that he was bringing into being through his life and ministry. Now we need to be really clear about this, though, that Jesus' ministry. Um, actually, we need to be clear about the fact that everyone was not healed in Jesus' ministry. And that the kingdom did not come fully in the sense of establishing the just society during his earthly ministry. And that the ultimate hope for the, um, the, the, the fully just kingdom is with Jesus' second advent. And that it's not the job then of the church to establish the kingdom on earth through its ministries. We can bear witness to the kind of kingdom God intends, God will bring into being through his son by the way that we treat other people. It's also important to understand, if we're going to take Jesus' ministry seriously, that Jesus' ministry, Jesus's ministry of the, of, to the poor and the neglected was not limited to their healing. That Jesus saw that in addition to their external problems, there were the internal problems. That even that Jesus respected the poor enough to give them moral agency. He told them they could repent of their sins and become different types of people. The way that I, the way that I like to speak about this is to say, the book of Genesis, sorry, the book of Exodus gives way to the book of Leviticus. The liberation has as its telos worship, and you see over and over and over and over again that Jesus heals people and then calls them to follow him. So the the advocacy for societal and personal transformation or social transformation does not need to be in conflict with the idea that the interior of the person needs to be made to be need, needs to be made new. Jesus gave the poor enough agency to, to call them repent sinners who, who who like anyone else could repent. So we might then be tempted to refer to biblical justice as the fair treatment of all people 
that reflects God's own character with a particular concern for the ways in which society steps upon the disinherited peoples of the world. And there seems to be an assumption in the Bible that this exploitation would remain a potential reality until Jesus' second advent. So, if you then have in the Torah the concern for the disinherited, if you have in the prophets the concern for the disinherited, if you have in the Psalter the concern for the disinherited, if you have in Jesus' own ministry the concern for the disinherited, and if we had time, um, we would talk about Paul's own ministry, where when Paul and um, Peter, and they had the reconciliation, and, 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 and Paul is commissioned to go about his evangelistic ministry, they, say, they tell Paul to do one thing. They said, we only ask you to do this, to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So we have Paul added to this to this list. If you then venture on further afield, you have someone like in the book of James, who James himself is, is looking at the ways in which the poor are exploiting the rich. If you go all the way to the book of Revelation, you see the idea in which God is condemning the empire of its day for its luxurious trade and its exploitation of other people. And so you see from, from Genesis to Revelation, basically, there's this overriding concern, not this overriding concern, this recurring concern for the, the people of God to bear witness, in, bear witness to the society that God wills for humanity. And so, yes, it is the case that the church cannot establish justice perfectly, like we can establish no um, vision that God has for his people in the scriptures perfectly here on earth. But it does not prevent us from being strong advocates and letting society know that we see the places in which it is not being all that God has called it to be and to call that society to as much as possible actualize in its own day and time the, the treatment of people as persons called for in the scriptures. Thank you all for your time, and I look forward to talking to you all soon.